What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Dr. Mike T. Nelson is one of the smartest people I have had the pleasure with knowing um, in the fitness space, in the nutrition space, just in this in- industry period. I met him, uh, should have had to have been two or three years ago, at the Physique Summit Seminar um, in Springfield, Missouri, which was held by Cliff Wilson and John Gorman, which I think they still do. Um, so I met him out there. Um, he was familiar with some of the, the people that I have worked with and some of the work I've done. I was very familiar with his stuff, so we got to chat, and then we got to link back up, obviously, for this podcast. So we've stayed in touch, and um, I'm glad I did because he's literally – the dude is so smart, it's insane. And it's such a pleasure to be able to learn from colleagues like this that are just at the top and at the forefront of what science is doing today. Um, so I brought him on the show because I wanted to show you guys a little bit of the science that he's working on, a little bit of the training stuff that he's working on, and what he's studied over the years. Because, I mean, like literally this guy has spent 18 years in university. 18 years. It's crazy. He has a PhD. He has so many certifications, so many credentials behind his name back and everything up that he does. And he's in the trenches of science. So today we brought him on. We talked about conditioning. We talked about metabolic flexibility. We talked a lot about HRV and how that can help you manage your training, manage your deloads, manage your stress levels, build better results. We talked about his go-to training splits and programming for physique competitors, athletes, um, general population, everybody that he works with. Um, man, we got into a lot of different topics and we broke down the science of it. Sorry, he broke down the science of it. And I got to sit here like a fly on the wall and ask him questions and pick his brain, which I love doing on this podcast. So um, this is going to be an episode that you're going to want to grab a notepad for. You're going to want to really slow down and just think about what's going on and just comprehend and take everything in, guys, because there's so much golden information, so many knowledge bombs in this podcast that you're about to listen to today. Before we get on to the show, guys, one quick announcement. The best way to help me grow the show is to support the cause. One way you can do that is obviously to leave a five-star rating and review. So if you love this show, you love what we're doing, and you are getting anything out of it, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It really does help us grow in the iTunes ranks. Number two, you can take a screenshot right now, share it on your story, share it on your Instagram feed, share it on your Snapchat, share it on your Facebook, share it whatever you want text a friend, tag me in it if it's on social media. Guys, I want to know who's listening. I want to know who is enjoying, what episodes are being enjoyed, and I want to be a part of the conversation. So please, share it somewhere. Help me grow this podcast. Help me reach more people. Tag me in it wherever you do so at. Last but not least, guys, we are uh, a Patreon. We have a Patreon account. So if you want to literally donate to the cause to help us grow the show, help us grow the movement, and actually put out more free content for you and everybody else who listens or reads the blog or anything, you can support the Boom Boom Movement at patreon.com slash boomboomperformance or just visit the link in the subscription. Now, without any further ado, let's get on the show with Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Let's start with your story. How did you get into um, like the science realm and the science side of things and get into really, I always like to call it like the geeky side of fitness and nutrition, which I love. Yeah. How did you get into really doing all that? I mean, if I'm brutally honest, it was probably just, you know, a typical guy, you know, in high school. I was the same height I am now, 6'3", weighed 156 pounds. Uh, so I was a very eel-shaped, rake-looking person. <laughs> it wasn't one of those dudes that was, like, ripped either. It was like, oh, I'm kind of fat. <laughs> you know, that's, that's possible at that height. Um, so in college, I just started lifting, you know, just, just to look better and that type of thing. And even in high school, I'd always been interested in the biology and I did an undergrad, actually, as a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science. And the school I went to, St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, was one of the very few, I think it was of only three programs at that time, where uh, undergraduates, any undergraduate, could take anatomy and physiology. And they actually had uh, full human cadavers that they used for undergrad anatomy and physiology. Um, so a lot of times, usually that was only in grad programs, after you'd been accepted and that sort of thing. Um, so I literally just took those classes just for fun. I was like, wow, this is so cool. We get to work on cadavers and we get to, you know, see how everything moves and everything. And then from there, I went and did uh, two years postgraduate and then a master's in mechanical engineering up at uh, Michigan Tech. So I kind of wanted to do the biomedical engineering, but back in the, I sound old now, but back in the 90s, that literally wasn't quite a thing yet. Um, I had a couple of people from HR tell me, I said, well, if I do biomedical, um, what are my odds of getting hired? Because I was looking at doing that as a profession. And they're like, pretty horrible. There's no real check mark on our box for biomedical. So we just throw them <laughs> resumes in the trash. I was like, what? Are you kidding? But 
all the people in the organizations, none of them were really biomedical, so they tend to hire people that had been through similar programs is where the most of the recruiting was. Um, so I thought, well, I'll do, you know, mechanical engineering. So I did solid mechanics and biomechanics stuff. And my master's was actually more on heat transfer. So real briefly, I created a computer-generated model that was of a monkey in front of a big microwave transmitter. And it was oddly enough sponsored by Brooks Air Force Base in Texas. And I'm like, and they're like, I'm like, well, what is this about? And they're like, oh, you know, they're making new collision of lighting systems on cars. I'm like, what the hell does Brooks Air Force Base in Texas care about collision avoidance systems? And then five years after I had graduated, my advisor sends me this little article on like the fifth page in the newspaper that says, uh, military declassifies ray gun. He's like, oh, yeah, that was your research you did. I was like, <laughs> oh. So they wanted to make a ray gun that they literally pointed at a crowd of people. And because the frequency is so high, it feels like your skin is being burnt by a light bulb. But the work I did and some others did show there's no deep tissue heating. So it causes the people to then um, disperse kind of out of the way of the, the beam. So just wow. interesting. And so I finished all that and I was like, I'm never going back to school. That was eight years. That's, that's enough. I actually started working for a biomedical company. And they're like, hey, we'll pay for your uh, classes if you want to take classes. I'm like, oh. I started taking more uh, advanced physiology stuff. I uh, actually started a program in the PhD program in biomedical at the University of Minnesota. Did five years in that. Um, didn't do any research, but almost finished all the classwork for it. And at the end, I'm like, well, what am I going to do with my life? I had been going to exercise physiology conferences for fun and spending all my money doing certifications. In 2006, I actually tried, started training people where I actually charged the money for a program instead of the previous five years where I just did stuff for free, which is a debacle. <laughs> um, good practice, but no one ever did anything. Yeah. Um, so I went over to exercise physiology at that point and started doing that. And that took about, about seven years, um, to finish. And at the time I wanted to do like an academic route. And then literally by like my second year in the program, I'm like, Oh, I, I can't stand any of the, um, stuff you have to do to be a professor. If someone could wave a magical wand and I could be tenured, then that'd be awesome. But it doesn't work that way. So, I, you know, to write a grant and spend six months doing that, I'd rather jump off a bridge somewhere and committees and all the other stuff. So I kind of opted out of that, uh, that, whole, that whole thing and just basically left the medical device uh, industry and just started doing my own business and just kept doing that from there. At what point did you start working with um, athletes and physique people and stuff like that? And, and when you did, what kind of athletes or, or general people were you seeing? Yeah, so in 2006, I worked uh, with just general population. You know, at that point, I'm like, hey, anyone who wants to train with me, you want to pay me money? Woohoo, you're my new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked at a commercial gym for a while, this basically old school renting space, showing up at odd hours in the morning and the evening. And that place actually ended up filing bankruptcy and they didn't bother to tell me. So I went there one night to train myself because I was cheap. I'm like, hey, I can train at the same gym, which again, not recommended, but I was cheap and didn't want to pay for another membership. And they're like, yep, we filed for bankruptcy. <clears throat> Write to this address in Iowa if you want your money back. And I'm like, what do I have clients I'm supposed to train here tomorrow morning and you look like just a complete you know, imbecile, but no one bothered to tell me. So after that, I took a bunch of money from two clients, I went to all my clients and said, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 85% off what you're paying now. The catch is I'm going to train you out of my garage and I'm going to convert that into a gym. Oh yeah, and I need the money in cash by January 1st. <laughs> <laughs> and like two of them said, oh sure, that sounds great. I'm like, perfect. Um, so I used that to buy some equipment from Lead FTS and kind of transition to that. And then... It was probably a couple of years, like two or three years after that, I started training just a few uh, physique competitors, basically just because they're just friends of friends and, you know, they, for better or worse, probably worse for them, unfortunately got kind of screwed over by other coaches and much of them had weird metabolism stuff, much of them had weird biomechanical injuries. <clears throat> so even all the people I worked with in that area were just kind of messed up, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and then did that for a while and it was fun, but I also had a clause that I wasn't going to train any physique competitors who weren't nuts. So that kind of cut out a fair, 
fair amount of them. And <laughs> that wasn't really news to even the clients I was training. Um, so yeah, just kind of transitioned more to that. And then kind of eventually over time, just kind of transitioned more to online then. So speaking of that, and I've heard you say this multiple times on other podcasts and stuff and kind of using the word broken, like you've worked with people that are broken and you try to quote unquote fix them. What are the issues that you most commonly see, whether they're physique competitors or just the everyday guy that just wants to get shredded or girl? um, And how do you go about quote unquote fixing them? Yeah, I need better terminology to come up with it because I don't like calling people broken. I have a whole thing against that, but I can't. Uh, if someone has better terms, by all means, please let me know. And I'm not the one fixing them. I'm just kind of helping them guide them. Their body's actually doing the fixing. But when you say that, people kind of know what you're talking about. Um, usually, sadly, for women competitors, it's usually metabolism type stuff. And for a while, I, I wanted to put my head through a wall because if I had one more perspective, female client who came in and said, okay, here's my um, routine. Mind that this is an off-season nutrition routine of uh, tilapia and broccoli Ooh, once in a while i get to switch it for asparagus you know just ungodly low calories and this wasn't even like a week before the show this is like their their off season type thing and then i swear all the routines were the same you know four sets of 10 to 12 of 15 reps of like 18 leg exercises all in the same day and they all presented with the same thing they feel like crap they have a hard time getting up in the morning and they don't want to go to the gym, zero motivation to train, and they're scared to death of a carbohydrate. They think if they look at a potato, they're going to gain 10 pounds. Um, so just all sorts of stuff on the metabolism side, sadly more for women. Um, guys, nutrition wasn't really as big a problematic I noticed with guys. With guys, I noticed more like biomechanical stuff. Um, the weird gray area where it's not bad enough for them to actually go to a physical therapist or they wouldn't go to a physical therapist. They're like, well, I'll just work around it. I'm like, well, wait a minute. So you're telling me your right shoulder hurts every time you bench press. How many times did you bench press last week? Well, like two or three times. I got to keep my chest up, bro. I'm like, you realize you're just aggravating the injury that you already have. Right. But I don't know what else to do. (laughs) You know, so a lot of it was, you know, the first thing was for them finding stuff that just doesn't hurt, right? So can we change the movement? Can we do some type of fly? Can we do a single arm press? Can we do a push up? Can we do a whatever, like something different than what you're doing so that we're not continuing to aggravate it. And then from there, I would look at like whole body structures. Um, there's some weird, interesting stuff with the shoulders and the opposite hip. Uh, so one guy I worked with was uh, a natural physique competitor. And funny story is, I, I knew him for quite a while. He was good friends with other people we knew in the industry. And it was on a forum, and I'd see him just bitching all the time about his left shoulder. And so I finally sent him an email, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm tired of you bitching about your left shoulder all the time. Are you going to do something about it? He's like, well, I don't know what to do. And so I said, well, you want to try some stuff out, and we'll see what happens? He's like, okay. Uh, super nice dude, super compliant. Um, but his big thing was like his left shoulder had almost no external rotation. And every time he would do an incline press, it would hurt. And he got down to, he couldn't even do 20-pound dumbbells without it hurting. He was doing like 90s for reps. Easy. Um, so looked at him and I said, hey, can you internally rotate your right leg? And he's like, what? My right hip? Like, can you just internally rotate your right leg at all? He's like, mm, no. He couldn't even barely get to neutral. So we, oddly enough, we did things that didn't hurt. And then we had him work on his right leg internal rotation in a bunch of different positions and stuff. And even after a couple of months, he's like, oh, wow, I can actually move my arm through the range of motion now and it doesn't hurt. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's slowly, progressively load it. Let's keep doing that. We had him do just a crap ton of rowing and some other stuff. And, you know, at the end of eight months, he was, you know, pressing, you know, hundreds for reps, which was like a all-time PR. Um, wow. So nothing... I mean, I wouldn't say we did anything crazy. We didn't do anything rehabby or anything. It was just kind of looking at his overall movement patterns and, you know, getting him to also stop doing the thing that was kind of causing a lot of pain and stuff too. So, Well, I think a lot of people just would never make that connection, right? Like how many times does that actually yeah. happen where it's, it's never the thing is never the thing. It's always related to something else down the chain. Yeah, and I asked him, I said, okay, how many physicians, PTs, and orthos have you seen? I think at this point, he was up to eight. Wow. I'm like, okay, has any of that solved any of your issues? Like, no. Okay. 
And I'm not trying to be your physical therapist. I'm just trying to get you to your goal by working around it. But hopefully when we do that, you know, we can kind of resolve some other stuff. I said, how many of them have only looked at your shoulder? It's like every single one. Okay, how many of their interventions were all shoulder only? It's like every one. Okay, and you're telling me you're still not any better. It's like, yeah. Okay, so let's look somewhere else. I'm not saying you don't have a shoulder issue, you don't have shoulder pain. I'm just saying of all those really bright people concluded that we think it's the shoulder, but the shoulder interventions didn't work. Let's just try to look somewhere else and see what's going on. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think that's powerful as a coach. I mean, not like I said, not enough people actually go to the extent to work on that. They just do what you said at the beginning. Just, just work around it. Just focus on something else. Just stop benching, right? And that's never going to solve the issue. That just puts a Band-Aid on it. Um, while we're on yeah. training, what is your philosophy with training splits and training routines? Like, how do you go about training these physique athletes? Because I heard you mention full body, but I'm curious of how you go about it. You said something about, you know, these leg routines where they just do every angle of squ- like leg extension, calf raise, squat, like you all know. these different things in one day. <laughs> how does your training look? Because I could assume when you program in a more functional movement oriented way, some of these physique competitors probably are shocked or like, don't want to do it at first hard to buy in what does your approach look like yeah it depends on the person there's a couple things you can do um the main thing that i find with um physique competitors is that they're they're almost like too into the super old school let's just utterly demolish the body part and then wait a week for it to recover and there are some people who can do that and they get away and if hey man if you've been doing that and you get good progress and i'm probably not going to change it but most of the time, people I work with are stuck and they've got issues they're working around. So what I'll do initially is I'll try to spread the workout and the load as much as I possibly can over the entire week, right? So Monday, you may do bench press and then maybe some tricep accessory, maybe some shoulder stuff. But then you may do a dumbbell incline press again Wednesday or Thursday, right? Or maybe some light push-ups for just a pump set on Saturday, I'm going to try to spread out that workload as much as I possibly can. Because if we look back and look at the literature and go, okay, what's the main driver of hypertrophy that we know right now? Uh, pretty much everyone agrees that it's volume. And if you look at how much high-quality volume you can do, if you spread out the work over the week, you can usually get a lot more done, which is a little bit deceptive, right? Because people will look and they're like, but I'm doing – you know, four sets of 10, you know, and I'm doing that for, you know, three exercises. I'm like, yeah, but track how much volume you actually get done, right? So the weight times the sets times the reps. What they find is that by halfway through their session, their their volume is actually dropping quite a bit compared to just taking two or three of those exercises and putting them later in the week. Um, so try to do that, which for some people looks almost too <coughs> haphazard. They're like mentally, they have a hard time doing it. So I'll usually do like um, compound lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday, maybe take squat, bench, deadlift, some type of accessory work after that. And then whatever their weak point is, I'll do like Tuesday or Saturday, you know, so some guys will say, Hey, I'm just going to do some shoulders on Tuesday and I'll have an arm day on Thursday. Cool. That's awesome. You know, cause I know the arms are getting hit when they're doing any type of pulling and when they're doing any type of pressing. Right. And, Arm exercises in general, you can build up a shitload of fatigue doing bicep curls. No one's really destroyed from doing it, you know? Yeah. Start doing that with deadlifts and squats and that kind of stuff, and you can dig yourself a pretty big hole right away. Um, you know, cardio, I'll try to program on off days if they can, depending on what they need. Um, I do look at resting heart rate and HRV, and if someone just can't take a lot of volume and their resting heart rate is really high, then I might be like, well, Let's take a step back. You know, if you've got nine months to go, mm, let's try to do a four to eight week block of gas aerobic training, right? Because if your resting heart rate is <clears throat> seated 71, eh, I think that may be impairing your body's ability to do more volume. And we'll still do some training during that part and your muscles not all going to fall off. You're not going to get super weak. But when you go back to training, we start adding more volume most people then find that they can recover a lot easier. And then the last thing I'll do too is just using heart rate variability, um, which will tell me the stress that's on their body. I'll have them do like a very low rep 
after I have a good baseline and then measure the HRV for about two days. So how long does it take to get back to baseline? And then I'll have them do just old school, same exercises, but hypertrophy, right? So classic higher reps type stuff. And then how long does it take you to recover after that? And so that gives me a good idea of how to program them together. So if you can handle like very low rep stuff, yeah, I'm probably going to put it in relatively more frequent. If you're someone who just thrives on a lot of volume, then I'm going to maybe do a little bit of lower rep stuff. And then the rest of the work after that's going to be all volume. Um, Cause I've seen the people's responses to those different types of training are very a lot. And I've had more than a couple of people have come in who were doing like a, like a DUP type split with very heavy volume, but also pretty high intensity kind of more power lifter type style and they'd mm-hmm. add accessory stuff. And a lot of them just would not respond at some point. They're just torched. Um, other people can handle it and we're fine. You know, that one guy in particular, same guy, we put him on just uh, old school kind of hypertrophy volume. And he was doing 30,000, 40,000 pounds of volume five days a week for, we'd run that for six weeks pretty easily. You know, granted, that's definitely, I'd say, on the freaky side of stuff. But, yeah, it was a natural competitor. He did fine on it. So, Do you, do you think that it's – is it all just related to the central nervous system, just how fatigued you get depending on um, what you're doing? And does that change person to person? As in, does one – is intensity driven like DUP, like you kind of just explained, is that always going to lead to the most fatigue? Or is, does that actually vary between people? Some people can handle intensity, some people better with volume, so on and so forth. Yeah, if I were to take a rough stab at it, I try to divide people between are you an intensity-based person or are you a volume-based person, even if your goal is hypertrophy, right? Um, And what I find is that, I don't know, man, I think a lot of it is just genetics. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think obviously nutrition and sleep and recovery and lifestyle, do all those things matter? Absolutely, they matter. But, you know, I have one guy I worked with, awesome guy, uh, he was a power lifter, was doing kind of a DUP split, which we modified. He could get away doing pretty low rep training, very strong dude. And his outside stress was ungodly high, got married, inherited a couple of kids because of marriage, started a new job, I think even moved once during the time. And, you know, he ended up qualifying for Raw Nationals. Now, if I put anyone else remotely on the split that he did with even half of that stress, they would be utterly destroyed by the second week. Um, so what maybe you could argue, could he have done a little bit better if he, you know, lifestyle was a little bit different? Maybe, but, you know, he had other things he was trying to work around and was just doing the best he can, and he, you know, made it work. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. I think we'll figure out in the future that there are some people who just genetically can handle higher stress in terms of percentage of 1RM, in terms of frequency. Um, usually I find most people are, kind of in the middle and like anything else right you have some people who can just handle just a piss ton of volume and you know don't get weird niggly joint stuff and tend to make pretty good progress on it too um so i think part of it maybe is central nervous system you could argue maybe some people just recruit a lot more muscle fiber so before they have a higher inroad into fatigue but you know, to qualify at a high level in powerlifting, you've got to be recruiting a shit ton of muscle fiber. <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, that guy who's kind of an outlier kind of throws that out the window too. So, and what I've seen by just looking at HRV is again, some people will do a strength session, they'll sleep, uh, they'll eat well. well this is, myself is kind of in that area. And for me, like if I do heavy strength work, I'm not so good for at least 48 hours and I can sleep 10 hours a night. I can up my calories. I can, meditate more and do everything to kind of counteract it and yeah it definitely helps but it at some point it can't shrink that anymore Um, and i don't i don't know what that's related to (laughs) so well let's let's just take a quick step back and kind of break down what hrv is just for anybody who isn't familiar with it what what is hrv how are you tracking it with your clients and what is it basically telling you so you know how to program going forward Yeah, so heart rate variability is basically just a marker of stress on your autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system, we can divide into two branches. We have our parasympathetic side, which is like pushing the brake down on your car. The harder you push on the brake, the faster the car is going to slow down. 
The sympathetic side is like the gas pedal. The more you push down on the gas, the more stress the car is going to see, but it's going to go faster, right? So now it's kind of almost like, you know, the pendulum kind of swings, I think, too far in one direction. People are a little bit, I think, too far on the parasympathetic side now, possibly. But you actually want both, right? So if you're going to go and you're going to do a, a five rep max, yeah, you probably want to be pretty highly sympathetic. And if you're not, your performance isn't going to be very good and you're not going to feel very good. However, as soon as you're done lifting or done with some type of stressful thing, you want that stress to go down. You want the parasympathetic tone to come up. You want to be able to have rest and digest. You want to be able to recover. So heart rate variability is just a measurement done once in the morning. And most of the systems, like I use the iFleet system or I have an Aura Ring also that I use. And it'll just put it on like a 1 to 100 scale. And it gives you an idea with just one measurement of, okay, what is the status of the stress that's on my nervous system at this point in time? And now the tricky part is, next question is always, well, what is that from? HRV can't tell you that, right? So if you had a horrible night of sleep, your nutrition sucked, and you beat the crap out of yourself training, yeah, your HRV is probably going to be pretty horrible. Will it tell you which one of those three was the biggest factor? You can kind of figure it out over time, but not just off of one reading. Right, so you can get a little bit of um, context from it. So in the iFleet app, they'll tell you, okay, self-rate, your energy, mood, nutrition, and training. And so when I have clients do that, I'm getting their resting heart rate, I'm getting their HRV, which is a marker of stress, and I'm getting the context of which that's recorded in. So if they're like, you know, on week four of a training program and that's been going great, the performance is awesome, and all of a sudden their HRV tanks. Oh, and I look and like, oh, yeah, your sleep's been horrible for the past two nights. Okay, let's try to work on your sleep, right? So without that context of that self-report, I think it's much harder to figure out what's actually going on from that. I love it. So when you, when you see these things, is your, for training, do you just immediately – is this how you determine when deloads come? Or do you already – or is this kind of give you a, almost like a schedule – depending on the athlete, like, you know, this person is going to hit a wall every four weeks. So you plan a deload every fourth week or so on and so forth. Yeah. So two things. So what I do now is I've been doing this for quite a while. So someone starts on a new program. Most of the people I see are probably overreached by the time they find me <laughs> and no one's going to pay me a lot of money and be like, Hey dude, or do that. Just don't train for two weeks. They're like, they're just not going to do that. And that may be the best thing that they possibly need, but they're just not going to do it. So what I'll do is, and the second question I'm also trying to answer is, I don't really know how much volume they can handle on a program if they're brand new. I don't have, I can look at their history and I can kind of get self-report and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if I guess wrong, now I got to go slide back and I'm all the way recovered and kind of go back up again. So what I did is I'll literally start some people out on just like one set a week of, you know, maybe two to five exercises, maybe only three to four days a week, you know, pretty low stuff. And then every week I keep adding a set. And so I'll have some clients. I just had another client, a female client. Um, she just finished week seven, which was seven sets. And she's like, my training took me like 90 minutes today. Is that common? I'm like, yeah, when you're doing everything at seven sets, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and that was like her max. She like halfway through that week, her HRV just tanked. Um, but the good part is, okay, so now we'll just run a short taper. You'll recover. You know, you're, you've only dropped for about four days, so we didn't, you know, burn you into the ground. And now when I just wrote her last program yesterday, I had a really good idea of about how much volume she can handle before she kind of reaches that tipping point. Again, given that her lifestyle is a constant, which for most people, it probably is program to program. So we'll start a little lower than that. So I started her out at, you know, four sets, did some density stuff at four sets again, went to five, density at five again. So I'll start a little bit higher. And then my goal is to work up to maybe around six sets for a couple of weeks and then see where she's at. You know, because I know seven sets was kind of going off the cliff and I kind of build some good capacity up in up until that point. Um, so I find for programming, that's helpful. For performance, if you look at, say, powerlifting or something where you have to perform on a set day where you're graded on performance, obviously physique, you're graded on your, your appearance, not necessarily your performance. Um, 
with new people, I'll generally have their taper. I'll ask them how long their taper was in the past and how it went. So one guy was eight days and I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, his numbers, as we went along, I'm like, they, they seem like he's more stressed than what he's reporting. So I said, okay, how about this? So you're trying to qualify instead of doing eight days for your taper or seven or whatever it was, I'm going to give you two weeks in your program. What? Two weeks. I'm going to be like detrained for my meat. I'm like, but if we watch your HRV as HRV, we want to actually degrade a little bit. Right. So you want to push them into that almost kind of overreaching a little bit, right. in the super compensation. And then if I give you two weeks, I feel very confident that that's enough time for us to get rid of that fatigue have some super compensation and you'll be fine. Now I may be wrong. That may be eight days. That may be 10 days. That may be 11 days. But if we go on the assumption that it's seven days and we get to day seven and your meets tomorrow and we're wrong, man, I really effed up then. <laughs> That's my fault. You know, if it takes nine days and you, we've got a couple extra days, we can always add more work, right? We'd add a very light simulation day. You could do simulation with your openers. You, there's a bunch of stuff you can do to add just a little bit of stress, you know, to kind of bridge them for a few days. You're not going to make them stronger in five days anyway. Um, you're just trying to get them to display the capacity that they have. Um, and that worked super well for him. And ended up, we added one extra day on a Wednesday. And then his HRV came all the way recovered. And then slightly dropped the day of the meet, which is actually what you want for a gross motor output. Right, you want them to be just a little bit sympathetic, but you want them to have repaid basically all that accumulated fatigue. Um, so for me, what I find is for programming uh, tapers and stuff like that, it's like super helpful. Um, again, is HRV going to tell you absolutely everything? No, but it's going to give you some pretty good ideas of kind of where to go, especially on something like performance. Um, if you look at the physique sport, what I use it for there is, again, stress, but in a different fashion, right? So if someone is 14 weeks out and we really screwed up and their HRV is just horrible. Oh man, now we got to figure out what to do, right? Because if we keep pushing it, they're probably going to fall apart maybe two, three, four weeks before their show and there's going to be a mess. Um, so maybe we back off a little bit, maybe we change something, in a perfect world, what you'll see is that the stress will get more and more and more. And some people will actually become super parasympathetic on the day of their show. I'll kind of overshoot that sympathetic range. Um, and you're just basically trying to use it as a marker so that their stress doesn't skyrocket super early. Because everyone's going to be super stressed when they're on stage. You're putting them in a depleted state. You're doing all these things that's not natural for the body. But if that starts happening 12 weeks out versus two weeks out, those are two completely different worlds. Um, and just having that and showing the client and saying, hey, for whatever reason, your body is like super stressed now. Maybe we're too aggressive on the calories that we cut. Maybe we need to change your training because we can't change your calories. We can probably make some type of adjustment and work around it at that point. Gas, do slow, steady, stay cardio or whatever. But if you don't know that and you're just like, ah, oh, just suck it up. Come on. You got 10 more weeks. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people just, yeah, the wheels come off three weeks out and it's just a mess. With with aesthetics and fat loss and stuff like that, are you looking for, on a weekly basis, like you want them to get pretty sympathetic after a training session because you know that you hit them with the right intensity, the right volume, but you're waiting for it to drop back down and then you bring that stimulus up and you kind of want that wave every week or is it more of a balance where you you never really tap into that point? How does that work for an aesthetic base or an appearance-based athlete? Yeah, with physique stuff, which I don't do a ton of, but it's tricky because you have multiple stressors, right? If you're off-season, so I'll take off-season first, right? So off-season, normally in a caloric surplus. So then if, you know, we'll assume that the person that's training is the main stressor in their life. So if they're at a very high level, they can control all their other lifestyle pretty tight. Then straight training stress, number one stressor, that's pretty easy to deal with. Um, a lot of other people, their lifestyle becomes their number one stressor, so I do more lifestyle intervention with them. But I may end up changing their training because the training is the only thing that's changeable in their life, even though their lifestyle is the main culprit. 
But if we assume that training is our number one stress, I tend to run with what's a U-stress model. So U-stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. So stress that's relatively easy to recover from. Um, so a distress session would be stress that's much harder to recover from, right? So doing the day of a competition, whether it's physique or powerlifting, very, very distressful to most people, right? And that's okay. So you're going to have a bunch of time off. You can repay that stress. It's not that big of a deal. Um, so if we go back to what is the main driver of hypertrophy, probably volume, um, I want to spread out that stress as much as possible. And I want to stress it in a perfect world enough to trigger the adaptation and then really no more. Now, no one really knows what that is. And you get in debates about is it linear and not linear and it's threshold, non-threshold. Eh. But in theory, that's what you'd want to do. So what I do is I'll play around with volume a little bit week to week, just kind of slowly bumping that up. And then I'll just watch their HRV. You know, if Monday session, if it takes them till Thursday to recover, oh, man, I'm probably going to modify Monday session or I'm going to modify nutrition maybe. Probably going to change their training. Because what I want is I want them to hopefully come back, train again hard Wednesday, maybe Friday, maybe Saturday again. Right? I want them to get as – if I were to bias myself, I would go with a, a frequency-based model to try to accumulate as much hypertrophy with progressive overload as I can. Um, because I think that's the main driver. The catch there is, as what you said, I want to see them kind of recover within 24 to 48 hours. Why? Because I want them to go back to the gym again and do it again. <laughs> yeah. um, and that gets into you can play around nutrition and lifestyle and that kind of thing too. Um, if they're, let's say, pre-competition, um, it's trickier because now in your head you got to go, okay, did I get too aggressive on cutting their calories? Is their sleep really destroyed because their calories are so low, low and their stress is too high? And it, you kind of have to play around with it and see what the response is. So I may hold their training constant. I may sometimes have them do repeat weeks. So, okay, you just finished week three. Wow, there's a lot of wonky shit going on there. Um, I want you to do the exact same thing for training next week again. But I'm going to change your nutrition a little bit, or we're going to do an intervention for sleep or breathing or something like that. And I want to see your HRV kind of come back down or get a little bit better. If we can't change calories, we may look at sleep, breathing, other types of interventions to see if that HRV will recover a little bit. Because my fear is if that's, you know, eight weeks out, man, we're just going to run out of time, right? We know HRV is going to erode before your show. That's the given. But I don't want it to start eroding super fast, and then you bottom out, and everything is just a disaster at that point. Um, and it's, it's hard because HRV won't tell you what the source of the stressor is. So having that context, having the notes, having conversations, you know, like actually coaching people, you know, that's where all that stuff becomes, like, super important instead of just going, oh, just eat less, you know. Right. <laughs> Good. I love it. So, um, it, I mean, I love it cause it, it creates so much more individuality, right? You can really individualize oh, totally. the program. What is the ring called that you are wearing? So people can know I'm going to put it in the link. Uh, in the oh show yeah. It's called the uh, aura ring. Okay. So O U R A. Okay. It's uh, well, it's a Finnish San Francisco company. Um, super cool guys. Some of the engineers who used to work for polar actually, uh, work for them. And what's really nice is that it'll do uh, resting heart rate, it'll do HRV, and it grabs it off of the vessel in the finger. So the reason they went with the ring is because getting data off of the finger is way easier than getting it off of the wrist. So the optical sensors that they use on the wrist are, they're okay at rest, but they're pretty horrible during exercise. I mean, they'll give you a ballpark, um, but they're not accurate enough, in my opinion, to do heart rate variability. Some people have devices that do that, but old school chest strap or a specialized finger sensor is probably the best way to go with that. Um, but the nice part about the aura ring is it does it, um, automatically. It'll do it while you sleep. And it's really very accurate in terms of consumer device for looking at sleep. So it'll tell you REM. It'll tell you non REM. It'll tell you deep sleep. Um, according to the study they published in sleep, the journal within like 90% accuracy of a polysonography or a sleep study. So again, not perfect, but pretty accurate. Um, they even tell you body temp, respiration, and you'll start to see those things go off when people have an immune thing or their stress gets too high. 
you'll see resting heart rate go up, you'll see HRV go down, you'll see body temp go up, and you'll see respiration go up. So you get kind of a nice kind of a non, they don't have to do anything. It's kind of grabbing all the data at the same time, which is nice. Yeah. And, and it's then, actually very accurate too. I was going to say too, like I, I know for me, I used to use Joel Jamison's all the time. Like when he first, I was actually part yeah, of a beta of group. Yeah. I was a part yeah. of a beta group way back yeah, then. Yeah. But wearing the chest strap isn't nearly as comfortable as wearing a ring. So I would love to to get that. And I'll put a link to that so people can grab it. But um, for those who let's say aren't, willing to wear the ring or don't have that capability of purchasing it do you have a list of things that people need to watch out for or pay attention to or rank on a scale of one to five or whatever it may be to make sure that they're somewhat paying attention to this stuff and they can monitor their progress and stress levels yeah so if i answer that from what i would say i observe observed from a pure physiologic range <laughs> looking at i've had daily hrvs from athletes now for five and a half years so i've looked at thousands of hrv points um the one thing that no one so far has been able to get away with so far is sleep uh there'll be some athletes that can do okay with six to seven hours or less and they'll you know pretty high level athletes and do okay but if you can get them to get more sleep they even do better um so i haven't seen not even a single person who's gotten away with and not getting good high quality sleep and not having to have some type of impact. Um, everyone kind of self reports, Oh, I can do six hours and I'm fine. And you know, Oh, there's the genetic anomaly, the deck two gene that allows you to do that. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's like way less than 1% of the population. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're looking at Navy seals, yeah, it's probably a high concentration of it in those people, but yeah. even then it's not a hundred percent. And you know, if I got three new clients that start that week and two of them tell me that that's, you know, I should start buying lottery tickets then. Um, so probably not. Um, the downside with that is that the psychological ability to change sleep is very, very hard. The one of the things I used to pound my head against the wall was like, oh my God, I'm reading all this physiology that says, you know, like sleep is like probably maybe number one or very high on the list. But man, trying to get anyone to sleep more or increase their quality or do anything is very, very hard. So when I did like the flex diet certification that I created, one of the problems I wanted to solve is, okay, how do you, how do you take all these interventions and how do you rank them? Because in the past I would have just said, Oh, that's easy, bro. You just go to literature and you look to see all these different things. You kind of, you coagulate and put all this stuff together. But when you work with people like with sleep, man, it's really hard to get them to do anything. So I said, well, let's define a term just called leverage, which is just the physiologic, um, effect times or psychological ability to change so for sleep i'd say okay at a one to ten physiologically that's maybe a nine or even a ten but psychologically their capacity to change is i've noticed is just horrible so at best i'd like give it a two right so their combined score 10 times 2 is 20 but look at something like protein you know well most physique people know protein is good and you can argue about amounts or whatever Definitely very high physiologic uh, capacity, even for fat loss, muscle gain, immune system, recovery, all that kind of stuff. So if it's like a nine, and I've noticed in most people, especially in the physique world, it's super easy to get them to eat protein, right? So ability to change, probably a 10. So protein has an aggregate score of 90. So let's start with protein and not worry so much about sleep. Now, I'm not saying that sleep's not important. I'm just saying that if, if you're trying to bang your head against the wall and only use a physiologic effect, it's going to be very hard. So I find that by doing that kind of allows me to look at all the interventions and kind of rank them. And if they're already doing great on protein, then cool, let's go down to the next one. Right. And at the bottom of the list is, is sleep. Now, hopefully you'll work long enough with an athlete and they're doing all the other behaviors and everything is good. And you'll get to that point And hopefully by that point, you also have enough buy-in from that. You're like, well, man, the last, you know, crap, the last eight interventions you gave me were great and definitely helped. Maybe there is something to this sleep thing if you're telling me about it now, right? So you have a little bit more buy-in and kind of more positive neuroplasticity with their experience with you and, and that kind of stuff. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question. It's a little bit of a different take on it, though. 
Absolutely. I think that, I mean, it comes down to one, you can't get away from sleep, right? Nutrition is a big factor in that. I'm sure lifestyle management and stress is a big key with that too. Um, And then for training, do you just suggest people like if you're not tracking HRV, maybe you split your training up like 50-50 as far as like intense strength base and then maybe volume hypertrophy base. And with cardio, I guess, listen to your body, right? Like if you go into the gym and you're planning on doing a high intensity interval, session like a real one um but you know that you're just fatigued you should probably opt in for lists low intensity yeah so what i would say like the general template i give people is not knowing anything at all what i've seen and what i've experienced by looking at hrv uh monday wednesday friday some type of lifting take like a compound lift each day so maybe bench monday right because it's national bench day you know wednesday squat friday deadlift um do those first you know, under five reps, if you, you know, can tolerate it. And then just do some volume accessory work after that. Tuesday, Thursday, I would do some type of low intensity work, ideally fasted first thing in the morning, uh, heart rate of 180 minus your age, right? So I'm feeling Moffitone. So if I'm, you know, 44, so I'm definitely going to be below a max of 140, so 136. So pretty low. Um, and then if you want to add some other accessory stuff on a weekend or do a strong Monday and Saturday or go run some hill sprints or whatever, cool, go do that. Um, because that'll give you, even if you beat the crap out of yourself Monday, um, Tuesday is a completely different stimulus. It's kind of increasing parasympathetic tone a little bit, not nearly as stressful. Odds are most people, unless they're really bad off, 48 hours are probably going to be pretty good. Um, it gets tricky when you start trying to push all of that stuff um, together gets to be a little bit tricky. And then for indicators, I mean, they can use resting heart rate is, is not too bad. They'll need something to monitor it though. An electronic device, um, willingness to train is actually a really good indicator. You know, if you've had like three days in a row where it's like horrible to get to the gym, you're probably overdoing it. Or if you need to snort four lines of a pre-workout just to get to the gym, <laughs> And this is the second day you've done that, you're probably overextending yourself, right? You know, if you're starting to do behaviors like that, that you know, everyone's done, you're probably pushing that line. And that's okay for a short period of time. But just know that if you weren't intentionally planning to overreach, you probably need to look and see what's going on. I love it. So you, you mentioned fasted. I have to ask this because I know people yeah. are going to want to know, and, and I'm sure you get this Best question all the time. Faster cardio. I get that, and uh, is keto good? Like, I get those two questions more than anything. Oh, so uh, let's start with yeah. fasted cardio because I think I've beaten the keto quite a bit. So um, uh, why, why did yeah. you mention fasted? Is there any benefit to it? What, what's your stance on that? So my stance, although it's unpopular, is I'm actually a fan of fasted cardio. Now, the caveat being – is there a massive difference based on the current data that we know in higher level athletes for fasted versus non-fasted cardio? Well, no, right? The main study was done by Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. It was done on females. It was a very short study. I think it was only six weeks. Um, they didn't use a metabolic heart. So we don't know exactly what fuel that they were burning, but it was done fasted. It didn't really show any difference in terms of body count. You know, you could argue that, you know, hey, that means faster cardio is not that bad or it's not that effective. Uh, six weeks to see a body comp change, eh, probably pushing the limit. But in terms of a direct intervention, that's the only study that I know of per se. Now, there's other studies that have looked at it from the amount of calories that have been burned. There's associative studies like Dr. Scott Robinson has done looking at max fat oxidation and other health parameters. Um, but if I think about like a physique competitor and what they're doing a lot of the time, especially in an off season, right? They are constantly eating a fair amount, which is good. Carbohydrates are higher, which I agree with, but they're really kind of pushing insulin up all the time, which makes sense, right? So they're trying to be a little bit more anabolic. Insulin is, is anabolic, but it's more an anti-catabolic. That's a whole different discussion. Um, and I think about, is there something that kind of counteracts that? <clears throat> My fear is that they may get, too far to the carbohydrate end of the spectrum and start losing the ability to use fat as a fuel very well. Now, again, you can argue that, well, it's just calories in, calories out. If they're healthy, they're going to burn more carbs and they're probably going to be fine from a body comp standpoint. Yeah, I would probably agree with that. From a health standpoint, I do wonder. 
And I, we could argue that there isn't any other data to show that having fed cardio is significantly better for fat loss. So I would say at best, the data says it's neutral. So in my brain, I'm thinking, okay, Tuesday, Thursday, I want to do a low intensity session. I'm actually trying to teach the body to use fat more as a fuel, knowing that that may not necessarily show up as a pure body count difference, but I think it is a marker uh, for health. And then I think if you look at the counter-regulation that happens when you start cutting calories, most people start to have to drop a meal at some point, right? If your calories are super low, you're probably not going to eat five meals a day. Um, so can you get your body to switch to use body fat in between there better? It's debatable, but I think you may see some benefits in terms of appetite regulation. It gets into some theories about lipostatic control and other stuff that we don't really understand enough. But if you give the brain another fuel source it could use, I think you're probably going to be better off. So I just also think that if, if you can't go 12 to 18 hours without eating, we, there's something that's not very healthy. Again, physique sports, things like that are not really graded on health. But that's not really the main parameter. Um, but I think there are benefits to it. And at best, it's going to be, from the data we have, a wash anyway. So I... Yeah, that's my bias on that. I, I think it is beneficial. Can I point to actual hard data on it? Not really. But you could ask the other question about all the people who love fed cardio. Well, where's all the, the hard data on that? It's not really there. It's kind of neutral. And so I think it's, it's helpful. Again, you can throw out the argument of that's what all the old school bodybuilders did for a long time. They did a lot of other stupid stuff that's been disproven too. So it doesn't mean that it's right. Um, but, you know, a lot of them were very successful doing that too. Yeah, and they're not part of a randomized controlled trial. But um, yeah, that's kind of my bias. And again, it seems to work, but I think it also, the main benefit is just for health reasons. And then also gives you the capacity to just not uh, appear to get quite as hungry once you start reducing calories more. I don't know what your thoughts on it are. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Um, and I've actually talked to a couple of people that have the same stance. And to be honest with you, if, if you can hear people who are in the trenches, they're coaching people, they're in the science, and they agree with it. And like you said, a lot of really lean people over the years have been doing it and it's working for them. There's no reason not to, yeah. especially because it takes a lot to get a study done. So we can't accept expect to have a study to prove every single thing that we want to do to get results. Especially on performance and sadly, especially on physique. I mean, yeah. there's like almost no money that goes into it, which is a whole nother discussion. Yeah. Um, but, and then even then, I always think from a practicality standpoint, right? So if you're on low calories Tuesday, and let's say you have to do, you're convinced you have to eat before you do your cardio. Now you have these longer times where by virtue, you're just not eating. And what I find is most people can get up. It's easy to do, you know, go for a light run, a bike, whatever, you know, half hour, 40 minutes, maybe 60 minutes, they tend to feel better. They're usually not super hungry after, you know, sometimes doing high intensity stuff. Some people will drive their appetite super high. Some people it won't. Um, and now you can have maybe three or four meals the rest of the day. And you, you feel like almost like a normal human. You don't feel too bad, you know, but now if you have to eat beforehand, now you've only got two or three meals, you know, left throughout the rest of the day. And I think from just a compliance standpoint i think it's a little trickier too yeah 100 percent agree um I, ha I have to touch on nutrition a little bit before i let you go so yeah, yeah. You're, you're big on metabolic flexibility what is uh yeah what is metabolic flexibility for those who don't know and why is it so important for us to know yeah so metabolic flexibility is how your body should work when it's healthy so if we it's, it's how well can you use carbohydrates on the high end and how well can you use fat on the other end so all this like crazy nonsense about, oh, you know, bro, you need carbs in order to fuel training to lift. And then, oh, but too many carbs make you fat. And you got to do a ketogenic diet because you need fat to be super high to teach your body to use more fat. But then, oh, wait a minute, that impairs carbohydrate metabolism on the other high end. And so I go to lift. I feel like crap. And to me, it's like, well, both fat and carbs are great. The question is, well, what do you want to do? You know, if you tell me that I'm going to do a low-intensity session, then the main fuel should be fat for that. 
So it doesn't make as much sense to eat a ton of carbohydrates beforehand. Are you still burning the same amount of calories? Yeah, you're probably burning the same amount of calories, but you're changing the fuel source that's being used. Uh, consequently, if you're going to go to the gym, you know, having a lot of stored glycogen and muscle in the liver, I'd even argue having some carbohydrates beforehand is going to be beneficial. Again, the studies on nutrient timing, again, are very split and not really pro or con. They're kind of in the middle and find some to support both sides. Um, but we do know that using carbohydrates to the highest degree is going to be beneficial. When we look at something like McArdle's disease, that they're missing that enzyme to break down stored glycogen. So they can't use glycogen or carbs as a fuel source. Their body's ability to do high-intensity exercise is horrible. And it feels bad. They get all sorts of weird muscle pain. And it's just a, a disaster. Now, again, that's someone who can't use carbohydrates like at all. So that's an extreme case from a pathology. So metabolic flexibility is how well can you use carbs? How well can you use fat? And then how well can you switch back and forth depending on what you're trying to do? And to me and to others who've done research on it also, that that's probably a very metabolically healthy state to be in. We know type 2 diabetics become very metabolically inflexible. They start losing the ability to use carbs on this end, and their body's sort of short-term solution amongst a whole bunch of other stuff is let's just whack up more insulin, right? We have a higher level of insulin. We'll be able to drive carbohydrates out of the blood, and that works to a degree, but because their insulin gets to be so high, they actually start losing the ability to use fat on the other end of the spectrum. So they become very metabolically inflexible, actually, from both ends of the spectrum. Uh, if you look at a ketogenic diet, so a ketogenic diet, I've seen stuff now that's like, oh, ketogenic diet increases metabolic flexibility. Well, they got half of it right. So it does increase the body's ability to use fat. So Jeff Bullock and the Faster study have shown that uh, pretty dramatically, especially in athletes who were trained uh, in that for, I think it was over a year before they were enrolled. So ketogenic diet definitely does help increase fat utilization, but because carbohydrates are so restricted that one, you're taking away the main substrate, which you can argue about, well, you know, glycogen stores do eventually get kind of refilled if calories are in a surplus, which is true, but you start losing the body's ability to use carbs. You downregulate something called PDH or pyruvate dehydrogenase. It basically just means you can't use carbohydrates to the extreme degree you did before. So if you're a strength and power athlete, you're going to lose somewhere you know, you know, around maybe 10, single-digit percentage off your top end, which is pretty massive if you're extremely competitive. Again, if you're not competitive in a performance thing, yeah, maybe you don't care as much. You know? So again, I think it goes back to what do you think is the baseline state of the body, and then everything else is just kind of a tool that fits in there uh, depending upon what your goals are and what you're trying to accomplish. Do you tend to periodize nutrition to increase metabolic flexibility, whether that's uh, yeah. on a weekly or a monthly basis? Uh, yes and yes. Okay. Because um, in my head, I'm like, okay, so what is the thing this athlete is missing, right? So some people who have done a ketogenic diet for a while or transitioning out, they might be missing this high-end uh, carbohydrate end. Some other athletes, um, we've seen some data, a buddy of mine from LA had data on endurance athletes and their crossover points. So basically them switching from fat to carbohydrate never happened. They stayed using carbohydrates almost a vast majority of the time. Again, that's fine. As long as you can keep up with the use of carbohydrates, you'll be fine. But if that, you get a kink in that fuel supply, you're, you're kind of screwed, right? So to me, Performance-wise, yes, you're good, but I think you're running at a, a higher risk. So again, you can then periodize that. So on a lifting day, in general, carbohydrates are going to be higher, especially before, after, and during. And a non-lifting day where you're just doing low-intensity cardio, probably not. You're going to do a little bit more faster cardio. I may drop your carbohydrates down. Rarely, I don't ever really go below 100 or 120. You kind of get in that metabolic no man's land, which really sucks. And your carbs are super low and you're not ketogenic and life just sucks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in general. And then if it's the guy in the off season and they're lifting really hard, I'll just keep pushing their carbohydrates up higher and higher. You know, you can get fancy and do a continuous glucose monitor and stuff like that to see when they kind of overshoot or whatever. But usually you can just use body comp as kind of an indication and in gym performance. And, you know, some guys will be 350, 400 grams of carbs a day sometimes. 
you know, it just depends on the person. Uh, that's not everybody, but some people. Right. So you, you mentioned, um, going into a ketogenic diet, it actually kind of shuts down a receptor that helps you utilize carbohydrates. We've heard about, oh. I've heard at least people talk about, um, they're doing it almost like if it's a super competition effect, which I'm going to ask you, is this all bullshit or not? But basically they do a keto style diet, very, very low carb. And then they carb load like crazy right yep. before an event. Or is that actually not working at all because of this? Or does there, is there some merit to that? Yeah. So they got half of it right. So I was thinking about this years ago and I'm like, so, okay, so wait a minute. So if I'm thinking metabolic flexibility is good and I'm thinking people are missing that fat end of the spectrum. So I'll run them on an aerobic base uh, type thing. I'm going to upregulate the use of fat. Maybe I could even put them on a ketogenic type diet because that's going to upregulate it more. And then we'll just give them a whole bunch of carbohydrates before they race. And there's actually been some cool studies that have actually done exactly that. So a very high-fat diet, very, very low carbs for, I think one of them was like seven weeks. And then they said, boom, we're going to give these guys just a piss ton of carbohydrates two days before their event. I think it was an endurance event. And then they're going to go out. They're going to destroy the field. This is going to be amazing. We're going to rewrite physiology. Woohoo! And performance wasn't any better. And they went, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what, how do we screw this up? What, what happened? They're like, oh, we probably didn't give them enough carbohydrates. Their glycogen stores weren't high enough, and that's where we screwed up. So I think a repeat study did muscle biopsy. So stick a needle in the vastus, pull out muscle, and see how much glycogen do they have. It turns out they had plenty of glycogen. You can even look at Jeff Bullock's faster study. They actually have pretty good levels of glycogen. But if you're talking about high, high-level performance, you lost some of those enzymes, especially the ones called PDH, so pyruvate dehydrogenase. It's kind of like the gatekeeper of sort of the Krebs cycle and all the, the bioenergetics. It doesn't go away entirely. It just kind of gets downregulated, right? Because they'll use it or lose it, right? So you haven't really used carbohydrates as your main fuel for a long time. So all these kind of enzymes and stuff kind of get downregulated by the body. So in a very short period of time, if you replete carbohydrates, you got one part of it, right? You got the substrate there. So substrate is there. So you did good there. The hard part was that the access or the rate at how fast you can utilize that and turn it into ATP, that actually got downregulated by somewhere in the single digits. No one's sure exactly how much, but, you know, 10 to maybe 2 3%, somewhere in there. And if you talk to these athletes, they'll be like, yeah, I'm just missing like that top end. You know, like in competitive cyclists, they'll be like, I went to, you know, there's no drafting, so I went to drop the hammer to pass this guy, and I, I, I just couldn't do it. You know, they're like, that just high gear is just missing. And, you know, that's obviously from carbohydrates. And so what you'll find is that most people, I find, don't do all that well. The caveat being, if you were more a recreational athlete, you may actually do completely fine because you're not having to operate at such a super high level. Um, but... You know, another study they did with uh, very, very high-level uh, marathon runners. So you think marathon, oh, my God, this is fat use, right? This is long duration, not at the, the high level. I mean, those people are running really freaking fast, and they're running almost entirely based on carbohydrates for the whole marathon. Um, but again, if you're a recreational athlete, it's a completely different goal, right? But if you're trying to be the elite of the elite on the high end – for maximum power output, no matter how fast you use fat, it just can't compete with carbohydrates in terms of the rate of the production of ATP. And then you can get into the whole like glycogen shunt and all sorts of other crazy stuff too. But Okay. So in a nutshell, if people want to improve their, <laughs> meta their metabolic flexibility, um, yeah. so carb cycle, possibly having higher and lower days, um, possibly yep. intermittent fasting. Um, I'm going to throw out sleep because I'm going to assume sleep is probably a big uh, player in that. Yeah. And then maybe even yeah. track on a, a glucometer to make sure that your insulin levels are healthy. Is there anything else that people can implement to make sure that they're staying metabolically flexible? Yeah. So I have the extreme ends of the spectrum. So I would say fasting is a good marker on the fat use end of the spectrum. Right? I'd like people to go, you know, for maybe up to 19, 24 hours of practice. Not that they're going to do that every day. Just can you do that? And are you okay? The other end of the spectrum, I have kind of what I call the, the two Pop-Tart test. 
can you eat two pop tarts and not, you know, pass out and lay down in an insulin induced stupor for three hours? All right. You know, that doesn't mean you need to eat pop tarts every day. I'm just saying, take the most highly refined, you know, 80 grams of glucose in a small package and see how you can handle it. Um, those are kind of the markers I use for both ends of the spectrum for testing. So in practice, what does it look like? You know, protein relatively high. Uh, carbohydrates will scale depending upon activity. And usually will be higher on days that they're lifting, right? So using a carbohydrate-based thing. Um, I would, people, I usually like them to do one longer fast only once per week um, just to teach their body the ability to use fast, maybe get some other benefits, that type of thing. Um, you're absolutely correct on sleep. You know, you can screw up someone's sleep. If you cut it in half, within the next day, their glucose insulin will be hosed. Uh, wow. So University of Illinois did a study. They went from sleeping eight hours a night <clears throat> to sleeping four hours a night. And they took healthy college age people and made them borderline diabetics within five days. Now that flipped as they got sleep, but they really messed them up within a short time by just massively sleep depriving them. Um, so sleep will make a huge difference. And then if they do glucometer initially, just do AM readings, get a really good baseline on that. And then they can get fancy and test out, you know, different foods and stuff like that. And Rubble's got some pretty good data on that too. Mm -hmm. Perfect. I love it, man. Well, shit, I think I could literally ask you questions for hours and just keep picking your brain. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Where can everybody find yeah. your work? Because you have a lot of stuff out there. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, so the best place is just the website. Go to MikeTNelson.com. So M-I-K-E-T-N-E-L-S-O-N.com. Uh, if you go up to the top, there'll be a way to sign up to the newsletter. Um, most info I put out now is through the newsletter. Um, other than that, you can look me up there, or um, if they're interested in more in certification, uh, just go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com, and they can get some more info there and be on the list. Perfect, man. Once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the All-Inclusive Guide to Mastering Your Diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be Functional Muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. That is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spend a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.